Hi, I'm Joanne Woodson, a solo practitioner specializing in commercial leasing law. I've been a lawyer for a long time, and I know that there's a lot to wrap your head around when it comes to commercial leasing. The goal of my podcast, the Commercial Leasing Diva Podcast, is to make your lives as commercial leasing professionals easier and more fun. In the podcast, I speak to other commercial leasing professionals who share their expertise so that we can all improve our commercial leasing game and better serve our clients. Today's guest is Bart Lamerson. Bart is an Executive Managing Director at Jones Lang LaSalle. He's based in Silicon Valley area of the San Francisco Bay Area. He typically works in the office commercial leasing space and he typically represents tenants. Bart and I have known each other for a really long time and he has incredible insights into office leasing in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think you're really gonna enjoy today's talk. So enjoy. Hey folks, just a quick note. I wanted to let everyone know that the interview with Bart was recorded well before recent events with Silicon Valley Bank. So please keep that in mind. It's not that we didn't discuss it on purpose. It's that the interview occurred before recent events with Silicon Valley Bank. So enjoy, and I'm hoping that I'll be able to present an episode about the impact of Silicon Valley Bank's receivership with FDIC on commercial leases. See you soon. Welcome everybody to the Commercial Leasing Diva podcast. I'm Joanne Woodson, your host, and I'm delighted to be hosting a series of episodes on the current state of the commercial real estate leasing market, which is crazy times, I think it's the best um, technical term for that. And to help guide us through this from, I think pretty much the tenant's office perspective is my good buddy, Bart Lamerson from Jones Lang LaSalle. Uh, Bart and I've known each other, I'm sure we don't even wanna think how many decades. <laughs> we once shared a mutual tenant client. Um, so Bart, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, describe a little bit about um, who your typical client is and the typical type of leases that you work on. Good thing. Hi, Joanne. Great seeing you again. And uh, yes, uh, it's been a long time. I had hair when we first started. So as you can see now, that's not a bad screenshot. There's nothing left. And, and I say it's been earned. Um, I've started, I started my career here in the Silicon Valley where I sit today and have been my entire commercial real estate career in the, in the late 90s. And really for the last 25 years, been focused on tenant rep. And I currently am at JLL, as you mentioned, Jones Lang LaSalle in the Silicon Valley. Uh, and, and really our work is focused on the tenants that occupy space here. And those are technology tenants for the most part. So myself, my team, we focus on everything from those small uh, entrepreneurs and residents that eventually get booted out of their uh, venture capital offices because they're growing or take up too much space. To some of the fortune, you know, 5, 10, 1,500, 500 companies that we all maybe rely upon every day to live our lives in some form or fashion, especially if we're tech related. So, your sector, and I know we share um, a lot of the typical um, client base that you just described, have been really hit hard by the pandemic in a lot of really different ways. The first was that during the pandemic, we all learned a painful lesson, which is that your standard office user has to pay rent, even though they can't go into the office. And we'll talk a little bit about the current situation with remote work, but just in terms of the pandemic, do you see any 
lessons learned from the high-tech tenants when they go to negotiate letters of intent in today's market that talks about, geez, if I ever can't go into the office again, I'm going to try and not pay rent or try and pay 50% because, spoiler alert, I tell you what I see, which is zero, which I am astonished by. But I'm curious what you're seeing. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think what we learned is exactly as you pointed out, the, the leases going into COVID didn't really even think of something like this. So it's hard to protect, uh, anticipate, you know, defend against something of an unknown, which is really what it was for all of us. The benefit of having gone through that now is we have awareness of things that impacted us. And and, and like any negotiation, like any lease uh, situation, leverage is key. You know, the size of the tenant, the market we're in, the landlord uh, composition is really going to be factors in what can what can be accomplished. But realistically, I think a few things that have emerged. One, uh, there is an awareness that some of these uh, builds, especially things that are shell buildings uh, that need to be constructed, uh, are going to be impacted by things out of both landlord and tenant control. And I think now we've learned that so we can come to the table and say, what if the city is shutting down permits? What if we agree that you know today it's six weeks, but by the time we go to submit our plans for permits, the city has told us it's 24 weeks or 12 weeks or 18. Right now, we tenants typically bear the brunt of that. We had so much time to build it, whether it's built or not, the rent starts, the lease starts. But now we've got, and we've endured this pain that we can come back and use it in conversations to say, if the city shuts us down or for reasons out of our control, not that we're slow, not that we don't turn comments in time, we have a city that just puts up the side, you know, now it's 12 weeks instead of six. We need you, Mr. Miss Landlord, to help bear the brunt of that because we're in this together. And those are things that we've learned and painfully so a lot of our clients, a lot of our tenants through COVID that we can hopefully apply to the future uh, and do that. The, the lease situation is also another one. I mean, I think you look at the savvy landlords and they've said the buildings can still be open. It's really, it's really not like they're open. It's either a county. Um, you know, was advising against it. We saw critical services able to go through COVID. So uh, there is some that come back with a little more uh, specificity around that, what it means before they might get some discounts or relief or how long it has to go before they do it. Almost like if God forbid the power goes out, you know, there's so many days before you start getting renovated. It's one of those new layers that come into a lease that we learned here, unfortunately, over the last couple of years. Right. So what I'm hearing you say is, not necessarily that the tenant goes right in and says, okay, so if we're shut down for, you know, there's a shelter in place order, uh, we want some kind of discount or abatement of rent. What you're saying is there's tough negotiations on the front end in terms of the construction timeline, which as you mentioned, has been heavily, heavily impacted by COVID. And there's a lot of reasons, one of which is there's just a, a people power shortage in those offices. They might have different hours than they previously had much fewer hours. Um, there's a high pent up volume, I think even still in many jurisdictions in the planning and building departments. And so they've just got so much to process and they've got uh, less manpower. That doesn't even talk about if there's a future right. shutdown. Right. Um, and that's where, and that's so to take that in the beginning and, and really own it and say, okay, let's allocate risk in terms of how those delays impact, whether it's a landlord build or a tenant build, that we understand this is our the world we live in now. And you know we're not gonna have a hard rent commencement date if we're the tenant, which can't be adjusted 
if we're preventing from construction, again, despite diligent efforts or however me or other lawyers would draft it, sure. if we can't do what we're supposed to do and we're trying with all our best efforts to do it, we get some break in terms of when rent's going to start. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, again, it's back to leverage. It's back to situational negotiations. Uh, the credit tenants that are looking at seven options equally and there's seven desperate landlords, you're going to get a lot more than, you know, some of our clients, we've been blessed, so maybe step back in the Valley versus San Francisco. So very distinctly different markets. Even though yeah, and I was going to ask you about that because, of course, the city is suffering horribly. High, Very high vacancy because of remote work. So as we know, many high-tech companies, uh, the groups that we're talking about, have either um, embraced 100% remote work or some flexibility of, uh, on the employees where they can elect to only be in the office certain limited times. Um, How is that impacting leasing in the peninsula? So the benefit of the Silicon Valley, when you compare it to uh, San Francisco, is the diversity of technology. So what I mean by that is, I, I coined the phrase keyboard tech. So most of the uh, companies in San Francisco are software, they're SaaS, they write their code on a keyboard, that's how they develop their technology, right? Salesforce, Zendesk, you know, you name it, they're, they're at a keyboard, Twilio, they're, they're big, large San Francisco-based centric companies that came up during the 2010 decade and they pretty much need a keyboard and a screen to get it done. You and move they have down. a philosophy of really cramming groups of people together to generate sure. ideas. Sure. So they're there and they're doing that on a keyboard. They are attracting the talent that likes to the energy of the city. So when they leave the energetic office, they walk out to the energetic streets, they go to energetic clubs and games and night areas and parks and young people and all the things they do. Well, that went away and so did a lot of the desire to come back to the office because not that they have to be there, they could do their keyboard wherever, right? They could do it uh, from the lake house or the ski cabin, they could move back home to their parents, whatever. Maybe. You come down the peninsula, literally once you cross the county city line, you're in life science, you know, you're in one of the mega hubs of, in the world of life science and you can't right. do the cancer experiments you're trying to conduct right. from your cabin. You have to be in the lab, right? So that in and of itself changes some of the dynamics around this work from uh, anywhere this hybrid work. Move right. down the peninsula, we have other keyboard type technologies along the peninsula, but as you kind of get to the true Silicon Valley, Palo Alto South, you start seeing hardware companies, right? We represent a company that does, uh, they make computer, uh, they make data center components for data centers. They actually create a box. It's a, it's a high-tech box that goes into data centers. They have Q and A labs. It's like light manufacturing, right? And they do all the R and D. They pilot the next. Hey, we're going to take this right. current device and make it better, and we're going to play in the lab. And you and I are going to tinker and solder and do it. You can't do that remotely, right? So we right. in the valley on the peninsula have had the benefit of a diverse diversity of technology companies that absolutely have to go to a spot, have to go to a lab, have to go to an office. All the R and D. I mean, Tesla has grown through COVID because they're trying to pioneer the next generation cars and all the other Tesla tools and toys that are going to come from them. And they've right. taken massive amounts of space right. because they need labs. And we've seen that uh, throughout the Valley uh, in particular, that's helped us you know, feel a lot better nationally in our numbers of vacancy and rental impacts uh, versus the city because they truly are a keyboard tech only uh, market because uh, you don't have those Labs, you don't have those, you know, R and D parks that you have down right. the peninsula into the valley. Right. 
Right. Well, of course, the latest headlines now, and I know this impacts the peninsula as well, is uh, all the high-tech companies doing layoffs. So it was one thing when you had a hybrid workforce with partial remote work. Now we're seeing significant, you know, 10, 15% of workforce being laid off, which for some of these companies is thousands of people. And, you know, I read in the paper, again, not my client, nothing to do with it, but just as an example about Meta intends to be doing early termination of leases to the tune of some billions with a B, billions of dollars. Um, are you seeing any ripple effects from not just them, but other companies who are trying to buy out and reduce office footprints as far as uh, San Mateo County, San Clara County? Yeah, uh, we, we are. We, we meet as a team uh, here at JLL. We just came out of our meeting today. And right now we're about, of the overall uh, of the overall stock, what's called the peninsula, we're about 4% that's subleased. We're on the market for subleased. So one in 20. Very tiny number. Very tiny number. So it's not a huge impact, whereas in San Francisco is more than double that, and it's the highest of any market in the country. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but back to the, the, the goal, the tenants, um, that have the capacity to buy out. Take like the Facebook example you use. There are some landlords that say, I don't know if I want it back even at 100 cents on the dollar, right? right. Certain rates- And of course their lender is may be putting the kibosh on it as well. Right, so a couple of things go to that. One, uh, if it's a REIT, they don't want the, they don't want the uh, vacancy. And the way they treat, even if I said I need ten million dollars of rent over the next five years, I'll write you a check for ten million. I just want to be done with it. Right. That ten million dollars. my books. That's treated differently in that situation than paying ten million a year for the next five years or whatever to two million a year. For right, the next right, five right, years. right. So there's some underlying uh, uh, economic and financial parameters for your landlord that will influence it. Right. There are some that say, wait a minute. Yeah, you may be on tough times. Your stock may be down, but you're still one of the top five, 10, 1500 companies in the world. You know what? I'd rather you stay there, insure my building with your responsibilities for this triple net lease. You right. keep it up. I get to reimburse the costs. We have the CPI crazy inflation continue to run rampant. I can pass through a lot of those costs. And I would rather get the building back in a market where I feel like we've either hit bottom or we're on the way up. And that might be in five years when your lease is up. No, thank you. I don't want it back. Right. So that's typically how you see these conversations starting in. I've got right. your checkbook. I'll give you 95 cents on the dollar, 75, whatever they start with. Some right. landlords simply just don't want it because they don't want the vacancy or don't want to deal with the impacts of a big check for their own financial, you know, uh, internal right. internal reasons. Right. And I, I have had that with a couple of my clients. And it's, it's very painful because... Um, I mean, this is where sort of, to get philosophical for a second, this is sort of the roots of capitalism. The landlord is under absolutely no obligation whatsoever to agree to an early termination of the lease, even for the full value. They don't have to do that. Um, and, and that is very hard for tenants to understand sometimes. As you point out from landlord's point of view, there might be a lot of very sensible and, and, and indeed um, contractual reasons why they can't do it. Yep. Their, their hands are essentially tied. No, you're, you're totally right. So that's where then the, the, the next step is, all right, how do we mitigate this liability? Right. Do we cut rent? Do we offer free rent? What do we do to be the next lease in this particular building or submarket? How do we position it? You know, fortunately for these larger tech companies and using the one you referenced, 
most of their space is very well appointed, right? Because they went in there and they decided I'm going to build it for myself. So they spend more money. They have the money to, you know, really go class A inside, right. finish levels and toys and technologies and tools. And in some cases, right. you know, if it's left plug and play, they just take their computers out. The value that represents to the next tenant in is, is significant. Right. So you kind of feel like, okay, when the market starts trading again, those high quality large cap tenants that have surplus space are likely going to be some of the first to go just because of what they've invested in the value that subtenant, that next occupant is going to get from them because they can move into perfect space without spending the capex they would going to a direct lease down the street. So the lender or the landlords that have direct space, especially those in Shell, this is a nightmare for them. Just because right. now they're competing with not only more absolute, space. Uh, absolute product, more square footage in general. But the square footage is ready. ready to go. Exactly. No, no delay in terms of build out for the tenant. Totally right. No schedule delay, no risk delay, no capex exposure. It's plug and play, move in. A lot of times the lease terms are shorter. So CFOs like it because they can still get in and mitigate the liability on their books. Right. And still accomplish some of the same goals that they're out to. With, of course, with for a subtenant, if they're in a growth mode, they don't want a long term necessarily sure. because they're like not sure. Am I going to take off? Am I going to start hiring hundred employees a month in a year from now? I don't know. Am well, I going to go bust? And it didn't work out. And, and, and you know that joint is is totally true, and even more so now. It's the opposite, right? Which is what we're we're, we're telling people is you're going to be wrong. Just accept it, right? Because as much as you study your people. The, the subject you study is going to change your mind tomorrow, next week. They're going to get sick of coming in. They're going to miss coming in. They're going to have a kid. They're going to, you know, kids, get, like whatever the reason, because we're people, we change our mind. So to say I've perfected it today on this sample set, it's really not really helpful in a week because the sample sets changed. So we're going to get stuck in this analysis paralysis. So you have to just accept the fact we're going to be wrong. And let's create guardrails to keep us within certain boundaries, right? So if we're wrong, we're kind of within the field. The short-term subleases for the growth is equally valuable for those of, hey, we think 50% of our office is coming back three days a week. Well, what if in two years, it's 30% one day a week? That short-term sublease is the same thing that says, okay, I'm not too deep into this lease. I can downshift to smaller space or whatever it may be as equally as I could take more. So it's becoming more and more valuable for those in flux to say, look, we're not really making that big a bet by taking a three-year, two-year sublease. Right. especially if we're not putting a bunch of money in. So right. if we're drastically wrong one way or another and it falls outside of our guardrails, we're not walking away or stuck with this huge liability in our books to go course correct when we have more data, more experience coming out of this work from home experiment. Right. So in terms of um, direct leases with tenants right now, are you seeing it uh, in Silicon Valley being a pro-tenant market because the landlords are fearful of the glut of sublease that's going to come on the space next year? Or are you still seeing landlords holding pretty steadfast as if it were, because that's what they've been doing for like 18 months, right? The landlords just been going, it's still landlord market, still landlord market, even though the writing is really on the wall. Yeah. Um, back to the it's circumstantial and it's specific. So for example, there is a project in Menlo Park which has not really been a deep market. It's not Sand Hill Road. It's along the El Camino corridor, brand new construction. They've created a destination where it was just a bunch of small little retail in the past. It's mixed use. It's got apartments. It's got retail. It's got a class A. You can walk down to the Caltrain station 
and it's become a very desirable project such that rents like are, the, the rents that they're achieving on an annual on a net triple net full service basis i'll do my math because we quotes monthly here but it's you know eleven dollars a month so 130 net 100 and you know expenses of new construction are not inexpensive it's the top so of san francisco market it, it's as high as you're going to see and they're full they've leased it all out so in that case you know, it looks different. And that owner is saying, what recession, what, you know, impact of right. COVID. I've filled a whole vacant development that I started and finished kind of during the COVID era. It's now 100% leased. Whereas you go into some secondary markets and you downgrade from class A plus new to class B minus, you know, second, third generation. And those folks and those owners are going to be in trouble. And they are now and they're going to have to win on price, and they're going to have to find the people that just want to save as much money as they can and still be in reasonably comfortable office space. It's right. not new, not amenitized. It's not walking to the train or the cool parts of town, but right. you're going to save a lot of money. And some tenants are going to cater to that because they're in that time uh, in, their, in their economic cycle or their, their recessionary cycles. Right, right, right. So switching gears a little bit, a lot of what I talk about in this series is the letter of intent phase. Because sure. I feel like that often gets overlooked. Um, and if it's not overlooked, I feel like it's often rushed through, especially, I don't know if I should say, especially in markets like this, it doesn't seem to matter what the market is. Whatever factors are driving the tenant or the landlord, someone is in a rush. And when they're in a rush, they tend to whip through these letters of intent, which are non-binding, but still have a great deal of weight. Whatever it says, even if it's not signed, Kind of doesn't matter. People will look to the words of the letter of intent to guide the lease negotiations. Sure. What are some of the worst mistakes that you see people make at the letter of intent stage? Um, from a tenant standpoint, especially in a market where you don't have to just, you know, bid on it, right? Like a blind bid. Here's who we are. Here's our credit. Here's what we'll offer. I think it's that very, that, that very sentiment you just shared, which is they rush through it. Um, you know, if you look at the dynamics, you know, we're all salespeople in the brokerage and it's kind of the environment we're in. And usually if we're dealing with the other side, they have a broker most likely. And if they don't, they usually have inside leasing professionals that are very sales oriented as well. So part of it is, hey, let's get to the next step. You know, nothing happens till not the LOI signed, but the lease is signed. So it's a milestone to get there. Uh, so I think people do cut corners or rush or don't really think about it. Uh, we always preach to our team, especially tenor rep team and the and the you know the junior team or the people newer to the industry, this is the most important time of the whole process because you have typically a trade party on the other end that seemingly is willing to accept the primary economic drivers, right? We're okay on rent and we've negotiated a TI that works and the term and the start date and they're trying to get it into the lease as quickly as they can. This is the time that you can extract some things or possibly plant seeds or give us footing for the negotiation where we bring in our partners, the attorneys, that are ultimately going to either drive it or sit you know, with us as we go through it together. Um, one of the ones I use all, all the time is subleasing rights. You know, a landlord will say, sure, you have the right to sublease the space, you know, to be to be further negotiated in the lease, right? Okay, I have a subleasing right. That's better than being silent, although state may say you always have one. But what I always try to do is even even though if you don't want to negotiate it because it may not be appropriate for a long two, three paragraph provision, a couple sentences, right? The landlord will not have recapture rights, nor will they impose restrictive subleasing conditions. Seems pretty innocent, right? 
you're not going to restrict us from something. No, but where we've used that to our advantage in the lease is when the landlord comes back and says, okay, here's your form lease. You can sublease it, but it's reasonable for me to reject the sublease to a tenant in the building, tenant in the park, someone I've spoken to in the last six months. And you have to go out to sublease your space at the same rent I'm subleasing my direct space for in the market. All things that hurt a tenant, right? An 18 month sublease is a fire sale compared to a five or seven year class A lease. So we've been able to go back to the LOI and say, nice try. And this is when the attorney, their attorney typically involved, either their outside attorney who may not have been as close to it or their inside counsel, we point to and say, this is exactly what we meant. You're restricting our competitive nature by taking tenants in the building, in the park, at a certain rate. You got to get it out of there. And usually we win. And it's because that one or two sentences in there, it doesn't really cost a ton of time. It's not controversial. It's not anything. But those are the things that we try to weave into uh, LOIs, especially as we're, we're getting close. And we blame our counsel, we blame our attorney, oh, you know, but it's all it's all pre-orchestrated to say, okay, we know what's coming ahead, especially if we've negotiated with this landlord. Right. We need to get some foothold in this LOI that doesn't seem like it's that impactful, but when we get to it in a week or two or three, it's going to sure help and protect our tenant. And I think that's the art of letters of intent, that you have sort of the spirit of the deal in very short sentences without having the whole lease. You don't want a 20-page letter right. of intent. Right. Yeah. Right. How do you feel? I mean, the other thing that I see and, and I represent probably 50% um, landlords, 50% tenants. And in my landlord forms, I have a number of landlords. The form lease will say on assignment, well, really subleasing, the landlord gets 100% of all excess rent. So there's no profit sharing. And it's not addressed in the letter of intent. And yeah. I feel that puts the tenant behind the eight ball, unless you have some sort of general language like you're talking about. Yeah, and you know, to me, I've, I've never heard a good argument for that. Because, so so play this out. If you get, you're the landlord on the phone. Market's $5 and I'm paying three. Let's just say there's a nice middle ground where there could be some sublease rent above my rate. Well, if I don't see any of it and I don't have that requirement to go to $5, I'd be a fool to make it harder on myself. So if I'm not seeing a penny over $3, why would I market it anything but $3? Versus a 50-50 or, you know, 60, two-thirds, one-third, where we could say, listen, the market's five. If we go to 450, we're still a really good value market. Now we've got some additional revenue to share, and I can offset some of the costs. You know I spent on this really nice TI far above your allowance just to kind of help me recruit it. And we've become almost joint venture partners in this endeavor. But if you're going to tell me I don't get a penny of it, why am I going to work any harder to make you more money and make my life more, more difficult when I'm the one paying the freight every month to get me to a, a, an exit with a subject? And, and what I've seen, especially in this market uh, in San Francisco, where the sublease market is so, so competitive, I mean, they're just giving away space, is I've seen tenants run the numbers to make sure the landlord doesn't get profit sure. because then they can have the lowest number so that they, yeah. you know, yeah. net out zero, they're fine. We won't make profit either. We don't care. We'll just net it out to zero and, you know, or, where they or, maybe or, could or, have gotten more money. And I'm not going to say I've done this, but <laughs> maybe I know someone that looks like me who's done this, where that may have been something that we inherited. We never negotiated, right? We inherited the lease. Um, next thing you know, there is a plug-and-play sublease where we lease it at cost because we can't profit. 
And that $500 share we bought three years ago is worth $500 today. Has not depreciated one penny. And we sell our assets without a markdown because we know for the incoming, because we're at $3 in a $5 market, even paying a furniture freight monthly over time. We'll, let, we'll, we'll put a favorable financing. Let's just say you pay us 50 cents a foot for the next three years. It's not rent, it's a furniture purchase plan. We're recouping that money that we may not have had to work harder to recoup if we were more equitable in the split. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a that's a rabbit hole we could spend a lot, a lot right. of time for. Um, so also at the letter of intent stage, and this is one of my my issues because this is a a, a non-determined term. It'll say security deposit will be determined once the landlord looks at financials. Yeah. And, you know, then that, the landlord is making it up later. And so it's say, not uh, agreed upon. And how, how do you feel about that? Say, put that on the list of mistakes made. You know, that should not, you should not have an unknown deposit as you kind of memorialize sign going to the LR. And um, usually, you know, that can be done in matter of days it's not like it takes months or weeks to do it it's a matter of transferring or getting the right information if they're public it's really easy here the financials look at them if it's private probably the hardest thing to do is make sure the nda is in place and covered and everyone's comfortable with it uh, but that should never be anything you go into uh, a lease or a signed letter of intent with an unknown deposit because as soon as that happens your leverage goes tenants leverage goes way down Unless, like I've seen, where now we're in a, a very pro-tenant market in San Francisco, you know, the lease negotiations are going along. The landlord finally makes up their mind towards the, you know, the eighth inning of the game and, you know, says, well, I think it should be a million dollars. And the tenant's like, well, if, if you want me to sign this deal, it's $200,000. Yeah. Yeah. No, so right. it, it can go either way and hurt either side if it's not determined at the letter of intent stage. But I see that very, very often. Yeah, no, I, th I think that is something that I would say uh, would be on the list of mistakes. Get it out now. Tenants typically have the leverage. And in markets where there is a ton of vacancy, I mean, I've done it long enough to know that in certain recessionary times, you know, the credit check was like, they have a pulse and they're going to pay rent, you're in. And if I'm not putting a ton of there's money no out. There's no TI dollars. There's yeah, no TI dollars. Now, if you're putting money yeah. out, it's different. But if you're putting money out, you're also going to want to know that. Right. Because, you know, is it is it expensive? How do I have to securitize it? Am I better off just funding the TIs myself than locking up a year's letter of credit for 10 years? Like, so some CFOs would rather, you know, not lose the, the use of that cash if it means spending less on their own and we restructure the deal and get a lower rate. So there's things that it can impact. It's not simply just a security device or a security deposit instrument. It really is a component of lease, lease rate, term, all those things that go into it. Um, you know, I joked with one client, there's a very large tech company that has a lot of cash. Um, and, you know, you get some of these landlords that, you know, scrutinize it and they're trying to come up with it. And one of the things we heard was their cash balance is too high. They have too much cash on their books. You're kind of like, that's your justification for asking for a month's rent on a company that clearly is a fortune two, three, five right. company. Like, come on. Right. Like you're reaching, it's a market norm, you're asking for it, you're not going to get it. Like anyone can make up any reason to ask, but it's truly the market dynamics that are going to govern a lot of this. Uh, and getting that like any any of these before you memorialize an LOI and kind of tell that 
landlord of that building, you know, we've chosen you over the others we've considered, that's your highest leverage and that's when you're going to get your best deposit outcome as well. Yeah. One of the things at the letter of intent stage, and, and this can, can continue on through the lease negotiations, and that is, and I, I, I often mentor younger attorneys about this as well, what do you think is the key for brokers and attorneys to successfully partner um, to represent their client in a way that's proactive and helpful without the attorney and the broker sure. <laughs> being like this, because yeah. you know there's a stereotype that we don't like each other, that we're at odds. And I have found over years that the broker can really help, really help the client manage expectations, understand the market, help get them over certain hurdles that the client's just like, especially the tenant could say, well, that just doesn't seem fair. Like, well, <laughs> let Bart explain how the market works and that landlords always get this and yeah. let's just move on. Yeah, I think uh, that's a great point. In a perfect world, uh, you know, the and, and when you get to work together, like we have done in the past, like we know each other, you know the client, you kind of understand it. So some of that's already embedded in our in our relationship. Let's say it's fresh and, you know, new. I haven't worked with you, you haven't worked with me, new client to one of us, both of us. I think the best thing that broker and attorney can do is get on the phone as the project kind of develops. Because that attorney may not be, they aren't in all the conversation that usually leads to the broker being engaged and the directive given. Hey, we need this, let's go forward on it. And if the attorney knows this is a high growth company, speed is gonna win this deal. Uh, we may not be perfect. We're solving for, you know, getting that space before the next iteration of the technology rolls out so they can hire or they close around. Like, so understanding the drivers at a higher level around the reason we're engaged to go find real estate and we're all working together. That's one. Because uh, I think that also frames up, all right, we can have the conversations of, hey, I would rather have a 95% lease done in, you know, a month and perfected at 100% and take two to three more months. Like, the trade-off of what we want to do, which is a lot of what we do, right? Trading off, when do we concede? Are we protected against, you know, what's the reasonable probability of exposure? And then the other thing that I'd love to do, uh, in some cases I can, some cases it's hard. If it, if it can't be done in person, we always try to do it on screen, is take like 15 or 20 minutes to tour the attorney through the site, especially if we get to oh, a that's point brilliant. That is such a good idea. Like, you know, you're in town, you're in the city, I'm in the city. Let's go grab lunch and we're going to walk through the floor because I want you to see here's the path of entry. And when we're talking about, we want our own turnstiles over here to our elevator. Now you can visualize it. So when you're drafting language or helping, you know, the concepts that we're trying to memorialize in the lease, you're not trying to use my description and the client's description. You've now seen it with your own eyes, you've touched it with your own hands. Uh, you know, you've driven it. Hey, we're, we're concerned about the neighbor next door. Now you can really see it. So when you and the attorney have the sidebars, you can articulate the same concerns in an equal or better position than they can, which helps all of us, you know, get the win for the tenant or client. Um, but that those would be the two things that if we can do those and understand, right, here's the driver to con uh, the deal, the transaction, and get the attorney there. And if not, with technology tools, I know we possess them. I mean, you can almost do a tour from your, your anywhere, right? You just need a yeah, screen. Absolutely. fly around on Google Earth. We have a technology, sorry about that, called Blackbird. We use it in jail all the time to tour markets. If you can't fly out there to at least get a familiarity with it, like 
that way it captures and frames, oh, okay, I get it. This is the building you're referencing and the neighbor over there, the, 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 the expansion space is one building over like, what does that really mean? Now we've seen it, now you've got a better feel for it. I think, I think that's really great. And often when I'm representing landlords and I get comments from the tenant's attorney, it'll become clear after a little bit, oh, they don't know the property. They're making these comments as if, you know, especially in San Francisco where it's just a building on the street, there's no parking garage. There's no, they're, right. they're making comments as if it were some big office suburban project yes. when in fact it's not. Exactly. <laughs> so a lot of the things that they're worried about or, and then there are things they should be worried about. So this, if this is an historic building in San Francisco with one little creaky elevator, again, yes. there should be maybe some other concerns sure. that they're not aware of because they didn't, they didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think the condition of the premises is one of the things that uh, can be very hard for attorneys if no one takes the time, either as the landlord or the tenant, whoever you're representing, to explain to you what the product is that you're working on. So that people seem to think, oh, the attorney can just do a lease in a vacuum and it's just a cube of space. And that is not true. Every lease is very, should be very specifically tailored to the, the product that you're going to be leasing. Totally right. I, I agree completely. I think that that point of a historic building, unless it's noted in the LOI, or you as an attorney have every historic building in a city registered to memory, like that's going to impact how you treat things, both in the lease, but also to the client. Like, hey, client, if you want to rip off all the walls, like this is not the building for you. Let's cut bait now versus iterate three, four cycles to realize, oh, geez, we're in a historic building. Hopefully we the Unless you're really it. willing to partner with the city and the historic right. preservation and like your CFO or CEO has got it in their head. I have to have this building. It's a premier show place, but I'm going to want a big plate glass thing. Yep. If you want to invest the time and energy and, and probably a lot of that would be pre-lease to make sure you can do sure. what you want to do then that, you know, you kind of have to prepare the client. Like you're going to have to Which, spend some money before a lease is signed to make sure you can do that. Exactly, which goes back to one of the drivers of what, why are we doing this? Oh, if it's a fast hit growth, got to get in quickly, efficiently, like those I mean, conflict, flush that out early and either decide, all right, what's going to get scheduled or do we have to give on the building and go find something else? Right, right, exactly. Okay, so one last question. You've been so great. I've so enjoyed talking to you. I think we could probably talk for many hours. Um, anything else you'd like to share about the current leasing market or lessons learned in the last couple of crazy pants years that you'd like yeah. to share? You know, a couple things. One, I think, is tenants go into leasing space today. We are seeing a just uh, the capital markets turned on their ear, right? They're, they're in some ways annihilated. We're seeing and hearing of stories where just recent uh, loans are now underwater, not the, the building value, but the loan itself, right? The $800 foot building with $400 foot debt is now worth $300. What happens? Um, I think it's important for new tenants and existing tenants, especially those that have some critical functions inside the space. You know, it's one thing if we're able to pick up and move across the street over a weekend. If you have last, space. Yeah, right. if you have, you know, server rooms that are, you know, pretty detailed and robust, if you have any sort of pilot manufacturing R&D, like understand life science. life science, understand your landlord's uh, profile, understand the loan profile, because, you know, in some instances, if you need to keep the space, do you have an SNDA in place or not? If you don't, 
you know, maybe, maybe you're not a big enough tenant to warrant it or you didn't think of it. Like having that awareness. So if all of a sudden you start seeing uh, signs that the building value is below water or your loan value, and now all of a sudden they're underwater and they're running into some cash flow issues, right? Maybe half the building's now vacant. You're going to start seeing things happen potentially to your uh, building that might impact your tenancy, right? Do capital expenditures get deployed in the current schedules? You know, do HVAC systems continue to work? Are they fixing things? Worse yet, does a lender come in and say, okay, now I'm, oh, I, I own the building. And if you don't have an SMBA, what then? So I think just being smart about how we're going to approach this time when these capital markets are still choppy, values are still down. Uh, it's going to be really important, especially if you as a tenant or those tenants have anything that's going to be hard or timely or uh, costly to replicate, because you should be aware with eyes wide open what's going on. So you can either start to contingency plan or hedge against it. And those going into it now, like we learned with COVID, you know, I got a TI allowance. It may be 12 or 18 months before I actually get it, right? I have to negotiate the lease. And then we go get a permit and then we design it and we build it and then we pay our bill and go seek reimbursement if it's structured that way. You know, is that landlord going to have 100 bucks a foot available to us in 18 months? So securing it potentially in a letter of credit, uh, looking at getting offset rights so we can immediately turn around and not pay rent until the TI allowance that we were supposed to receive has been paid. Like all those things become more and more important now, all related to by our vulnerability with your with your landlord or future landlord or current landlord in their your current loan situation. And getting the lender to honor those obligations. Right. So it becomes much more important to carefully negotiate that SNTA, which when it comes from the bank is going to say something like, if I foreclose on the building, I'm not liable for anything the borrower landlord did. Uh, I don't have to fund any allowances or whatever. Most banks are willing to negotiate that and most banks will negotiate it, but you, it's the onus is on you to bring that up and to make sure the lender agrees to honor. I, even if I foreclose, I'll disperse that. And that may mean a backroom deal between the bank and the landlord where the landlord has to escrow the funds with the bank, whatever, that's landlord's problem, but yep. you want to make sure your tenant's protected. Or or more directly, tenant says, I'm going to, you know, whatever the deposit is, I also need $100 a foot in a letter of credit right. in my name that you lock up. So once you get it, I'll release it. But if you go away, that's already earmarked, secured at the bank. I can go get my letter or go get my fee allowance that I'm afforded based on the economic terms we agreed to, Right. Um, you know, actually, actually fulfill the thing. So. Right. It's a layer of due diligence that we, this is similar, as you recall, during the Great Recession, right? You had landlords coming in promising, oh, I'll give you all this money to do this, right. this, and you've got to do your due diligence on the landlord. Are they good for those promises? Is the lender going to back the promise? And I remember in those times, 2008, 2009, where, you know, my tenant ultimately ended up not doing a deal because they could not get the confidence that that TI money, which was millions, very substantial, would actually be available at the right time. Yeah, no, it's it's all it's all ahead of us. It's all something like you said, the extra step, especially now that we know it's on us, right? You know, any lender can, or any landlord can have a problem with any loan at any time. Good market, bad market, right? But now that you start to see signs of more and more occurrence of these things happening, the smart tenants take that step back and say, all right, let's just do a quick X-ray look look into the debt stack, look into, I mean, thankfully we have got great capital markets partners here 
they spend all day doing it. So it's, you know, grabbing those folks and, hey, we're looking at the ABC Tower and, you know, Main Street. What do we know about the loan? What do we know about the lender? Let's be smart. And sometimes it's yellow flag, green flag, red flag, but at least being able to, to articulate that early because no one likes the sp surprises, especially our tenants who just signed a lease and realized, oh, geez, now I'm dealing with the bank, not the guy who promised me the world. You know, we, we should know that in, in the industry and as professionals doing it. Exactly. No, those are those are excellent pearls of wisdom. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, Bart, so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. I like I said, I know we could have further conversations, and there will be different iterations over this over time. So I'll definitely reach it back out to you. Anytime you're down here, especially in the uh, on the peninsula or the valley, please look us up. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, right, we'll and well. we'll be in touch soon. Thank you. All righty. Bye. Bye. I'm Joanne Woodsum. Thanks for listening to the Commercial Leasing Diva podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, rate and review us, like and subscribe. You know the drill. The podcast is produced by Sandy Viteri and edited by Matthew Salanoa. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you next time.